You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. In this episode, Big Tech and Censorship, Fergus and Hannah from our cyber team explore the intersections of regulation and democracy. Maddie spoke with special guest Natalie Sambi on defence and security issues in Indonesia, including the recent Surabaya attack. But first up, we have our two grumpy strategists, Michael and Marcus. Has Australia reset its relationship with China? And later in the show, how much is the future submarines project really going to cost? Well, hello, Michael. Hi, Marcus. There's been a lot happen in the last two weeks, but I thought we'd talk about two things. Okay. So the first um, interesting thing that's been happening is in the China space. And I'd note that last week we had the distinguished uh, Australian journalist Rowan Callick speaking here uh, and gave us a very interesting overview of what's going on in contemporary China. And that uh, presentation is on Aspie's website if people would like to go and have a look. But the, I guess, big thing that's happened in Australia-Chinese relations in the last week or so is Prime Minister Turnbull's speech at the University of New South Wales, which a lot of commentators have said is has reset our relationship with China. Is that the way you see it? I do in a way. I think it's reset the tone. You're talking about his 7th of August speech up at the University of New South Wales. Certainly reset the tone. He said uh, the Australia-China relationship is a fundamentally important one, and he focused in particular on the educational relationship as part of the comprehensive strategic partnership. But if you read what he said, he didn't step back from any of the measures that the Australian government has taken around the China relationship, and notably the foreign interference legislation or any of the large decisions that the government has taken on things like foreign investment, Ausgrid as a decision um, rejecting the Chinese proposed investment. So I think what he's done is he started to join the dots by being able to say we can have a very mutually beneficial economic relationship, but we will manage our clear strategic differences. Mm -hmm. So you'd say it's a change in tone, but not necessarily in content. No, and I think he's starting to show the ability to do two things at once. A lot of the China commentators fall into one or two camps. They're either hawks about China and see it all as threat, or they're optimists and see nothing but benefit. What the Prime Minister's showing is that the Australian government can manage both aspects of that relationship. And I think it was fascinating that he chose an Australian university to do that, because to me, the research and educational relationship is an area where those two, uh, both advantage and difference, are very, very prominent. So, I mean, the the advantages are apparent. The universities gain money from uh, foreign students and also they gain talent because a lot of, you know, very talented uh, PhD students and researchers come here to study and do research. So what's the the downside of that? Well, the Prime Minister gave great positive examples. You know, PhD graduate from University of New South Wales helping give uh, the people of Beijing clean water. Fantastic. Uh, But there's a downside that we haven't looked at and that universities don't speak about. And that's Chinese military officers and graduates of Chinese military universities and institutes coming to Australia and studying topics with the explicit purpose of advancing Chinese military capability. So are you saying there's actually Chinese military officers researching and studying military technology at Australian universities? Yes. Yeah. Examples like explosives technology, 
Now, the People's Liberation Army uses explosives not for peaceful purposes, but as part, part of their warfighting capability. But the Australian University, where this student studied, claimed that this research was for peaceful purposes. Now, I think the problem there is that's either willful blindness or it's just flat wrong. It's not in Australia's national interest for our research institutions, including our prominent universities, to advance Chinese military capability. It's also not in our national interest to advance the repressive, pervasive state surveillance and suppression of human rights that the, the Ministry of Public Security in China um, conducts. So these are the tensions in the relationship. And I think step one is a bit of transparency as the foreign interference legislation will achieve for people engaging in public debate and influence. But that same transparency from our universities, who is studying what? And if there are Chinese military students studying with the explicit goal of advancing the Chinese military capability, I think that needs to stop. Mm, it does sound worrying. Now, Marcus, submarines are much happier note. So uh, tens of billions of dollars, probably $200 billion, to get 12 future submarines. Now, the question that every taxpayer wants to know is how fast can we get to 12 submarines? We've got six colons at the moment. Uh, should we just retire them really fast and get these 12 new ones? What, what are the options for us? Well, I guess uh, I've been doing some work on this recently, and the bottom line is there aren't any good options to get to 12. So the current plan seems to have a two-year drumbeat of production of the new submarines coming off out of the shipyard, so with the first one starting in the early 2030s. If you do the math, you don't get to submarine 12 until the early 2050s, which is about you know 43 years after the 2009 white paper first said that was where we wanted to get to. So it is a bit of a poster child for some of the problems in our current capability development and acquisition processes. So what are the options? Are there options to get there faster? Well, you can get some of the way there faster. You can't get to 12 faster, but you can get to a larger fleet of submarines by keeping Collins in service longer. Is that possible? It is possible. So Defence has said publicly, uh, say at Senate estimates committees, that you could extend the life of the Collins submarines. So you would put them all through a life of type extension uh, program that would extend their life by about 10 years. Now, that would cost money, obviously. And also, by the time the submarines did reach the end of that 10-year uh, extension, some of them would actually be uh, over 40 years old. So there would certainly be risks about their reliability, what kind of capability they would provide. So they'd be like the American B-52s, you know, the aircraft, uh, the only aircraft in the world, I think, that has been flown operationally by people who are the grandchildren of the first crews. Well, it is an interesting you know, point that, you know, um, the first crew of the first submarine may not have joined the Navy yet, you know, and some of them, you know, are probably still in high school. So, so it's still a way away. But my sense is um, that in order to train the crews for the future fleet, which will be much bigger than the current one, we're going to have to keep the columns going. Just in order to have submariners, you need submarines to train on. And so um, whether we want to or not... Uh, we're probably going to have to extend the entire Collins fleet 
So what that means is that some of the Collins will be going well into their 40s. And in fact, even though it may feel like we've had the Collins around for quite a long time, some of the Collins uh, vessels may not even be halfway through their life yet. So one because, of the, because they haven't been used that much because there have been those operational problems. Well, there, there is the problem that they haven't had um, a lot of operational background because um, we had reliability problems. We've now fixed that, so we're meeting world benchmarks in terms of uh, operational uh, availability. So there, that is a good news story. But we're going to have to keep them going a long time, uh, which presents risks. One of the key risks is... Um, who's going to sustain them? So we're going to have to keep ASC, which currently sustains the submarines, as a healthy, viable entity for potentially another 25 years. Um, how much work can be pushed down into the Osborne Yard? Because we're building uh, the OPVs, the frigates, the new submarines, and now you're telling me we've got to maintain the Collins out into the, the 2040s down out of that same facility with the same... Um, exploding workforce. Yeah, so that is one of the key risks. So we've got a lot of shipbuilding projects competing for workforce. We've got to keep Collins going using a similar workforce. And there's going to be an extended overlap operationally between the Collins-class submarine and the future submarine. So again, we're going to have to develop the workforce and the capability to maintain both of those uh, quite different submarines. So it's going to be very challenging, I think. That whole transition process uh, is something that uh, Defence is going to have to think through very carefully. One last question, Marcus. In that $200 billion uh, cost that I've seen you publish on on the submarines, Mm -hmm. does that have any of the costs of extending the life, spending all that money to extend the life of Collins and operating Collins, the Collins submarines, for that extended period of time? Or is that a, a new bill no, on top of that That would bill? be a completely separate cost. So that would be in addition. Well, it'd be great to get some numbers around that uh, at, a, at a near point, Marcus. And now you'll hear from two less grumpy strategists, Fergus Ryan and Hannah Smith from our cyber team on big tech companies, regulation and censorship. So, Fergus, recently there's been a growing appetite for reigning in big tech. There's been the Cambridge Analytica scandal, the Russian hacking of the 2016 US election, as well as the general unease about the growing power in big tech firms. In the last couple of weeks, we've seen big tech companies change their tune on free speech, especially with the removal of conspiracy theorists' site InfoWars. Apple removed InfoWars podcast from iTunes. Facebook took down their page. YouTube followed as well as Spotify, Stitcher and Vimeo the exception being Twitter and SoundCloud. This has been welcomed by many, but there's also been many who are worried about the slippery slope of censorship. Yeah, that's right. I mean, on the one hand, it's a good sign that these uh, big tech platforms are starting to take the issue seriously because there really are real-world consequences for this kind of stuff. We've seen in Myanmar and Sri Lanka, for example, these sort of style of conspiracy theories that have been published via Facebook have led to anti-Muslim pogroms. And people have actually died and homes and livelihoods have been destroyed. So the debate about this is really more than theoretical or ideological. And these conspiracy theories are having a real world impact. But on the other hand, I think we should be extremely careful about rushing to embrace an internet that is moderated by a few private companies. We've seen platforms have already capitulated to censorship demands from authoritarian regimes. 
We've even seen breastfeeding mothers, women discussing online harassment, activists and dissidents around the world being silenced on some, some of these platforms. So I think the ultimate answer should really involve a lot of transparency about these content moderation decisions. I think that's really essential. Um, and whatever rules that are going to be used in future, they need to be consistent uh, and clear. And there should also be avenues for appeal. Recently, US Senator Mark Warner, himself a former tech executive, released a white paper with 20 ideas for regulating big tech. Now, Fergus, you summarised the paper in a recent strategist post. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so this was a really fascinating uh, white paper that um, Mark Warner, Senator Mark Warner's office, released. And they, in the paper, they said that they would hope it would really stir the pot for further discussion. And I would really recommend that listeners seek it, seek it out and read it because um, it goes into a lot of detail. There are 20 big ideas in there. And they span three major areas. One, dealing with the epidemic of disinformation. Uh, two, strengthening privacy and consumer protection. And three, ensuring competition in the marketplace. So together they provide a really useful framework for dealing with uh, big tech. So can you go a little bit further into some of these ideas? Sure. So um, there's one that is uh, called the Blade Runner Law. Um, and... That would require that bots be clearly and conspicuously labelled on these platforms. And this is a sort of example of an idea that is like a technical tweak that these platforms are already looking into doing. Um, and it's sort of an easy win for them because it's, it's sort of low-hanging fruit. And we're already seeing evidence that big platforms are experimenting with this kind of stuff. Um, one recent example is YouTube is working with Wikipedia to add fact checks to videos that question climate change. Um, there are sort of other ideas in there like increasing media literacy education in schools so that young people can uh, be able to identify fake news and disinformation. But the really interesting ideas in the paper are the ones that, that really call for fundamental changes to the business models of the big social media companies. And it's those ideas that I think are unlikely to be met with a huge amount of enthusiasm from Silicon Valley. And there are some even more radical ideas in there, aren't there? Yeah, that's right. Um, I think perhaps the most radical idea in the white paper is a proposal to require platforms to calculate the value of each user's data. So that requirement, the paper argues, would stimulate comp competition by providing price transparency to consumers. And this would sort of end up educating users about the true value of their data. And you can sort of see how a change like that might encourage users to get behind even more radical ideas um, that would require big tech companies to actually pay users uh, for using their services um, and for handing over valuable data. And that's an idea that discussed elsewhere um, and people are calling it data as labour. So there are, there are those kinds of radical ideas in the paper. Um, so it'd be really interesting to see the discussion that it promotes. But Fergus, how likely are these big companies to implement the ideas? Well, as I said, those sort of technical tweaks that they... Um, are already looking into, I think, it is the sort of the low-hanging fruit and something that they would be more willing to do. But the, 
the changes that really require them to rethink their business models are, are going to be um, harder for them to really accept as a sort of as an acceptable pathway forward. I think ultimately that these companies respond to two things. One is financial incentives, um, and the other is regulation or the threat of regulation. Um, and unfortunately, most of the time, the financial incentives that they receive are sort of misaligned with the broader concerns about how our democracies should work. Um, so Wall Street is only really concerned with growing in engagement and growing user numbers um, at any cost. Uh, so I think that ultimately, um, there needs to be the government needs to step in and start looking at some of these ideas that are um, included in Mark Warner's paper um, and trying to apply them to the industry. So what's stopping US lawmakers from doing something about the situation? So I think the main problem is that many of them don't really seem to understand the issues involved. Um, when Mark Zuckerberg gave testimony in um, April in Congress, the, the questions he fielded were pretty ridiculous. Mm, I remember some of them included, why am I suddenly seeing chocolate ads all over Facebook? Is Facebook spying on the emails I send via WhatsApp? Do I have as many friends as I think I do? That's right. They were totally ridiculous. So I think uh, the value of having this paper out there is that it, it offers a sort of a framework for those senators and those uh, lawmakers to ask questions that really get to the nub of the problem. Um, I really think it's time that uh, we stop admiring the problem so much and move on to talking about the nuts and bolts of how we actually fix things. So um, we're going to have representatives from the big tech firms, including Jack Dorsey from Twitter and Sheryl Sandberg uh, from Facebook, returning to Washington in September. We'll see if the questions are a little more sophisticated this time. And finally, here's Maddie's interview with Natalie Sambi. Hi everyone, this is Maddie. Today I was lucky enough to speak with Natalie Samby. For those who don't know her, Natalie is a research fellow at the Perth US Asia Centre and a current PhD student at ANU where she looks at Indonesian foreign and defence policy. Cool, so thanks so much for joining me this morning, Natalie. Um, hopefully joining me from what is sunny Perth. How hot is it over there? It's still a bit chilly, but it's nice to be over here. Nice to be in the West. Yeah, I bet. Probably better than chilly Canberra. It's pretty freezing here at the moment. So let's get started. Um, can you start by talking us through some of um, the current defense and security issues in Indonesia more broadly? Sure. I mean, the first thing to emphasize is Indonesia is a very large country, of course. It has uh, myriad issues that it has to face. But I think prominent amongst these is probably that of terrorism. Um, Indonesia, unfortunately, has been... Uh, the site of several terrorist attacks um, since the late 90s and mid-2000s. And most recent, of course, we saw three attacks in Surabaya uh, earlier this year. Um, and it underscores the vulnerability um, that Indonesia is exposed to as a result of people returning from the Middle East. Um, but it also talks to the efficacy of some of the security agencies, the growth of the police forces there that have developed since the first Bali bombing. Um, it also underscores the importance of intelligence sharing between the Middle East and Indonesia in terms of immigration and customs, people movement, um, but also the importance of underscoring coordination between agencies in Indonesia, between the police, military and border control as well. So Indonesia has done a lot to address the terrorist threat. And I think it's important to highlight the fact that it did 
managed to destroy the Mujahideen Indonesia Timor, the Sentosa network. But that also overshadows the fact that there are many smaller groups and decentralized networks. Um, of course, the families in Surabaya are radicalized going over to Turkey, but they, they were also smaller kinds of cells. And these are the kinds of issues that uh, Indonesia is focused on. Um, and of course, to that end, they're developing a number of other kinds of programs in terms of de-radicalization, but also um, fortification within society of national values like Pancasila. The extent to which these are going to work, uh, persuading people away from more radical ideologies is still open to debate, mm-hmm. but the Indonesian state is is seized upon these issues, and continually we see their ministers and their prim- and their president talk about terrorism as one of the most important issues facing the Indonesian state. You mentioned kind of like the threat of um, returning fighters there briefly. There's been quite a bit in the news on this recently. Just governments uh, essentially kind of refusing to sort of take. Um, citizens of their country back because they're worried about their ability to be able to prosecute them um, in country kind of thing. So what we're seeing is a lot of them being left behind in in places like Syria and stuff where they can't really sort of, you know, it's, it's becoming a growing security threat there. So what is kind of Indonesia doing um, with regards to their sort of returning foreign fighters? Um, Indonesia has, a, it has people in place in the Middle East that tries to identify Indonesians, because there are obviously people who go over to the Middle East Theatre who have different expectations of what it would be like to join Daesh or ISIS and fight for them. And they find that people of Malay-speaking origin are not considered particularly high in the hierarchy of fighters. So they have this kind of gap of expectation and then they want to come home. Um, so there are there are channels there of Indonesian officials who are trying to facilitate this. Obviously, they will face charges when they get back, depending on the kind of activity that they've engaged in. Um, but the Indonesian authorities are definitely working together with authorities in Turkey um, and other countries in order to be able to find out who's over there and what are they doing. And potentially, you know, for those who don't want to come back, those who would, having been radicalized, want to come back and conduct terror acts. Obviously, Indonesian officials are very much focused on that as well. And um, also the the Surabaya, um, I might be saying that wrong, sorry, but the Surabaya attacks you also referred to, um, they were quite... Um, you know, there was a lot of sort of stuff again in the media about that here in Australia and everyone was quite shocked about, you know, the fact that not only was sort of, um, you know, a, a family was involved with young children, um, which was, you know, I think it was like the first time that something like that had happened in Indonesia or in the sort of Asia Pacific region. What was the perception of, um, you know, the aftermath of that attack in Indonesia? What were people kind of feeling? I mean, Indonesian, the Indonesian media and the interviews with people who knew them, neighbours, expressed a lot of shock and sadness, obviously, about this, not only because the fact that it was a family that involved her children, um, very young children at that, but it was interesting that this were, these were not um, people who were necessarily disenfranchised. They were not mm. people who, I mean, as difficult as it is to talk mm. about a particular model of radicalization, a particular demographic of people who are susceptible, these were what their neighbors described as ordinary people. These were a family or, you know, just... Uh, not particularly um, disaffected or they were middle class, they were not poor or anything like that. So there was just this kind of, um, I suppose, surprise mm. at uh, how, I mean, not to mean a pejorative sense, but how ordinary this family was. There was mama, dad and a couple of kids um, who carried out these horrific attacks. So um, moving away kind of from the um, terrorism side of things, 
Um, I want to talk a little bit about Australian-Indonesian relations. Um, you know, they've certainly seen their ups and downs in recent times. I'm sure you're all over that. But I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts, Natalie, on how you see this relationship sort of developing moving forward. Yeah, look, I think we can even draw that into some of Indonesia's most important other sort of defence and security issues. Um, and the two other areas I'd point to are maritime security and in terms of human security, humanitarian assistance and natural, natural disasters. Um, those are two areas where there is a lot of cooperation between Australia and Indonesia, not only between the militaries, but between our other agencies, um, between our maritime agencies, um, but also foreign affairs. So I think the relationship in those areas is going to continue to grow. There is a lot of synergy between President Jokowi's global maritime fulcrum, his plans to build up Indonesia in terms of its maritime domain, not only in terms of maritime defense, but also its capacity to be able to carry more shipping and, and to build its ports, um, but also with Australia's foreign policy white paper, where there's a lot of emphasis on Indonesia as a priority partner yeah. and expanding more into the maritime domain. Australia and Indonesia already have a very high level of cooperation in areas like the Indian Ocean. Um, very successfully, both of them formed part of the Troika leadership uh, as, as their times as chair of the Indian Ocean Rim Association. And also they spearhead another initiative called the Bali Process, which deals with transnational crime and trafficking of people. So these kinds of initiatives, actually, I think they also get a little bit lost in the media focus when there is a disruption in the relationship, particularly yeah. where the army is concerned. Yeah, you only but really we, hear about the bad things. Hey? That's right, yes. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important to remember that, you know, the Bali process is run by Australia and Indonesia. That's a very good example of where a long history of cooperation, interaction and familiarity between our officials in foreign affairs and other agencies is actually producing tangible results with net effects for the region. Because obviously things like transnational crime and trafficking of people affects other Southeast Asian countries. Um, so I think there is a lot of potential for the relationship to keep steady. One thing I would like to highlight is that Indonesia participated in this year's uh, the sub-regional defense minister's meeting on counterterrorism. That was an inaugural meeting that defense minister Maurice Payne put together in Perth. And the Indonesian defense minister has expressed his willingness to hold the next iteration in Indonesia. So again, another sort of positive development. I will say, however, that doesn't diminish or eradicate some of the real challenges that there are, um, and those can include misperception between peoples in the relationship, which can sometimes put constraints on the level of enthusiasm or cooperation that political leaders might have. Um, and there are still some sensitivities, I believe, about historical issues such as Australia's involvement in the aftermath of East Timor. Um, that I think will take a long time to resolve between certain generations. Um, and I think there is still ongoing sensitivity about the fact that we are aligned with the United States, that we are, for all intents and purposes, a Western country, and that does not necessarily fit into Indonesia's own sense of self, which is as a non-aligned country. So if we want to talk down the track with really well-developed sort of initiatives like uh, an alliance or a treaty, I think those things are too far-fetched for now. Mm. There are still challenges. But I think we should accept that whatever we have is a very active program of military to military, government to government, civil society to civil society interactions that is producing a very strong um, level of cooperation and net security benefits for the region. Mm, interesting. So what would you say is kind of like a bit of a, a final wrap-up on this sort of um, line of the conversation? What would you... 
Natalie says uh, being the next big thing to watch out mm-hmm. for in the sort of uh, in this space in the Austra- in in terms of Australian Indonesian relations. I think it's um, to remember that Indonesia is a democracy, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the liberal democracy that we might expect. So Indonesia has a lot of excellent elements of a thriving civil society and a vibrant media. But in terms of the evolution of its civil-military relations um, is something that we need to think very carefully about. I think often we impose a Western model of civil-military relations um, on Indonesia and we're very surprised when we see high-level military interactions, expanding role of the military into civic affairs, you know, expansion of, of their role in terms of uh, training local people in terms of Bella Nagara program, being prison guards, um, distributing rice and things like that, things that we would not expect necessarily our military to do. Mm. But we should remember that the military in Indonesia has a very specific history that starting all the way from 1945, there are mythologies about its involvement in the creation of the Indonesian state and the long political role that it played during Sahaja era, that some of this thinking gets passed down within the generations and gets mixed in as well with democratic ideals. But it just means that our expectations of Indonesia need to be grounded very much in the sense of reality and not expectation. And we need to work with the Indonesia that we have. Yeah, exactly. So, And I guess this is sort of what you're kind of trying to address a little bit more broadly with your PhD thesis. I think so. And I think every military and every nation state is the product of its own evolution. And each entity has its idea of its sense of self. You know, for instance, you know, every organization has its own um, narrative. It has its own story. It has things that it wants to tell itself about who they are, values that they're proud of. And I'm trying to understand the Indonesian military's experiences in East Timor um, in terms of filling in our understanding of what that experience and how that experience shaped the, the Indonesian military, how the Indonesian military came to terms with the fact that the province is now an independent state, mm. for better or for worse. Yeah, it's not by by way of excusing some of the horrific things that happened there, but it's about understanding, I guess, perhaps a, another chapter in the biography of the Indonesian military. Mm, interesting. So you used to work for um, Aspie, Natalie. Um, right. And I'm not sure if you're aware, but you're kind of known around the offices as the Queen of Aspie Suggests. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, that's one of our kind of our more, uh, for people who haven't read it, it's sort of like a weekly blog piece. It's like a roundup of interesting reads for the week. And it's actually one of my personal favorite um, blog pieces. So what kind of, um, what inspired you to come up with this idea? I think, you know, it comes out of the days from Twitter when we a lot of the time it used to be about recommended reads and podcasts and there'd be a little sort of strategic community of, of bloggers and writers who would communicate with each other and so after a while I just sort of thought well you know it would be useful at the end of the week coming into the weekend to have a one-stop shop where you could find out all the latest cool things to read and interesting things to listen to things that would sort of draw in blog posts from you know sites that people may not consult on a regular basis um, or a podcast they may not think to listen to or your information to watch. So that was my way of aggregating that and um, putting forward things that I thought might be interesting to the Australian strategic community um, and augment you know, their understanding of how other countries saw things. Or you know, sometimes if people didn't have time, it would be there for them to consult. Um, and I always had a ball writing it. Um, I yeah. always thought it was nice to have a conversational tone. And Peter was very kind to let me have like a Lego figure image at the end of the week but I thought you know after a week of heaviness 
um, there needed to be a little bit of levity and uh, give something, some, you know, people something to look forward to for the weekend. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like, I've sort of come across so many interesting podcasts and stuff just from reading Suggest that now I sort of I follow on like a daily basis. So that's why I love it. It kind of, as you said, opens your eyes to sort of things that you wouldn't normally read in this space, but still sort of all on those sort of defense and security issues. So it's just, yeah, it's fantastic. Well, it's great to see that it's still going. Yeah, very much so. Um, so with that in mind, kind of, have you got any sort of interesting suggestions for our listeners or even podcasts or something you've been listening to recently? You know, I mean, one of the things I will say is uh, a busy person as everybody in the Australian Defence Strategic Community is, but when you're a area-focused person like I am, it's podcasts are a great way to kind of catch up on language. But the more I'm finding... Um, Philosophy is something that I think is very helpful for thinking about sort of security issues in our, in our place and just sort of pushing one's thinking away from the hard facts of, you know, the, you know, how many, uh, you know, fighter jets does this you know, country have and what's going on with this particular like code of conduct or whatever. Thinking about philosophy has been very helpful and taking a much broader step back and saying, well, actually, what are we trying to achieve? And the podcast series I would recommend for that is called Philosophize This. Oh, okay. I think I've heard of that one. Is that out of the States? Yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah, no, that's yes. um, very interesting. They do some great chats on that. And, of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention War on the Rocks podcast or um, Bombshell, which is great podcast run by uh, a couple of ladies out of the U.S. Uh, working in the think tank world. Uh, well, they have a guest on every couple of weeks, have a couple of drinks, a couple of scotches, and talk about defense and security from an American perspective. Oh, I love the idea of having a few drinks over a podcast. Maybe we should... I'll chat with Peter about instituting that with the Aspie podcast. No worries. We'll have to do it next time. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Natalie. I really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks, Madeline. That's it for this issue of Policy, Guns and Money. Thanks for downloading. We'll see you in two weeks.